Welcome to The Nature of Evil, Episode 1 of Taking on the Devil, a podcast celebrating 50 years of The Exorcist. I'm Gina Brandolino, a lecturer of English literature at the University of Michigan. My partner in this podcast exploring the dark corners of The Exorcist is Gabrielle Thomas, assistant professor in early Christianity and Anglican studies at Candler School of Theology at Emory University, and an ordained priest in the Church of England. In this episode, we consider how the exorcist depicts evil not just in an abstract or thematic way, but in the form of the devil himself, as Father Karras puts it, a real, tangible foe. Gabby and I talk about how the start of the novel sets up this aspect of the story and how the story aligns with theological formulations about the nature of evil and a somewhat different concept, the problem of evil. What is the real danger of evil? And how does the exorcist help us think about evil in the world? Keep listening to learn. The Exorcist opens. There are one, two, three, four, uh, four bits of text um, that Vladdy starts with, and one is this bit from the Gospel of Luke, um, when uh, Jesus meets a man possessed by the devil, and Jesus asks him what is his name, uh, and he says Legion. Um, and then the other uh, is a bit about uh, the mafia and torturing someone and, and sort of laughing about it. The third is about the, the torture some soldiers uh, perform on uh, people during the Vietnam War. And then the fourth bit of text is just the names of uh, three internment camps from uh, World War II, Dachau, Auschwitz, and Buchenwald. Gabby, what, why do you think Blady chose to start this way? So I think the fact that he started with a passage from um, the Gospels on the Gospel of Luke is fitting because of the fact that a lot of where we understand all of the different kinds of stories that later get told about the devil, um, a lot of these are, have different connections with the New Testament in different ways. Um, so... There's lots and lots of exorcisms that are performed by Jesus in the New Testament. And you can sort of see throughout history, these get um, embellished and played with. They take on different forms. They're used by the imagination. It, to me, it seemed the logical place to start. Now, out of all the different passages that he could have picked, um, I mean, there's temptation passages that he could have chosen. Um, there's all sorts of different ways in to thinking about the devil um, because there's the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, there's the experience in Gethsemane in the garden where he has these one-on-one -on -one conversations with the devil. Um, but I think the fact that he chose this one was fascinating um, because it's, the, it's that last word, legion, um, the fact that they are many. 
And I think the reason that he chose that is because he's trying to complexify, and I, I think he does this all through the book, um, the fact that we don't easily identify, even when the devil identifies himself as the devil, we're still not really sure 100% what that is. Um, there's a beautiful uh, little quote early on around the fact that one of the priests, uh, Merrin, he, he knows his name, but he hasn't seen his face. And so all of the way through, you've got this sort of voice of evil um, you've got this evil naming itself and, and telling you who it is, but we never actually see it in, in that particular way. Um, it's always manifested. Um, and that's exactly what's going on in, in this passage here. So that, that was one of the things that I thought he was doing there. It was a, a beautiful way in to just, just complexifying everything that we do and don't know about uh, this figure called the devil. Um, and then for the others... Um, I think he's actually taking us into the uh, why is evil as opposed to why is the person of the devil? Why do we have it? What, where does it come from? What's the effect of praying the Our Father, deliver us from evil? There are different versions of that prayer that could be translated deliver us from the evil one. A lot of the church fathers in the fourth century, for example, actually deli pray deliverance from the evil one, the devil, not this sort of abstract concept of evil. And so I think by setting us up with those quotes, he just does a lovely job of showing us that this is not simple. We're going to just make this as complicated and as blurry as we possibly can, um, because this isn't something we want to easily rationalise, because it's evil. Well, and it's interesting that, you know, we, the Bible often gets sort of cast as, you know, stories, mythology, you know, something that exists in a book that, that doesn't exist in, in, re in real life quotation marks around in real life there but it's interesting that he follows that version of um, evil on this um, epigraph page with three sort of news stories almost right like things from recent history right and so if you're going to com complexify something that has sort of gotten cast in these sort of you know dark but still watercolor uh you know, sort of images um, in a mythology almost, right? You're, yep, you're really yep. bringing it into yep. our world, right? Very much so. And I think trying to say, it's almost like he's pointing, if he had his finger out in a room and he was pointing at a blank wall, he, that blank wall would somehow have some kind of image reflected on it of the devil. Because it's almost as though by reading these statements, he's trying to say, ha-ha, this is, there's a connection here. And I want you to know about it. I want you to pay attention because I think these are connected. At least that's what, certainly when I was reading it, that's what I was, I was perceiving, that um, there's a connection here between this random thing that we think is a story and that we tell to, you know, at various points of the church year, we, you know, we recite them in church and we, we think about these stories. But um, there's a connection between these stories and, and what's going on over here. And the question, obviously, is, is there because lots and lots of people wouldn't believe that there is. Well, see that these these other three bits of text are bad, you know, they're bad things, but are they evil? Are they instances of the devil? And I mean, this sort of gets into the way people in the story think about what they're facing, right? Um, because not necessarily, it, it takes a long time before anybody in the story sort of works themselves around to seeing not only that this is the devil, but even that it's evil as opposed to anything else. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. 
I think that was the bit that I found most interesting and most true to uh, my own experience as being a priest in the Church of England. In part, the way the story tells it, it's not so much that people are scared to go there as it they just wouldn't consider it. Um, it wouldn't even be something that would enter the mindset or worldview of, of most people. And yet, clearly, it did the writer of this novel. And, and I think that's the thing that, certainly as I was reading through, he wants us to reckon with, um, is are we too sure about what we think we know? And the world of this story, which is a modern story and not one of these sort of, you know, sort of cast back, you know, in, in watercolor tones um, uh, kind of stories, but a story of, of modern times. This is a story that enters the waters of, it starts thinking about evil in an abstract way, maybe, and then quickly it sort of materializes in a very specific form of the devil. Can we talk a little bit about evil? Can you differentiate between the nature of evil and the problem of evil, for instance? Can, do you want to address that question um, that you just brought up a few minutes ago? Why is evil? Sure, because I think what was really interesting to me is at the beginning of the novel, you have, bless him, uh, Damien is sort of wrestling with all these things that are going on for him. And I think they relate more to what, certainly in the theological world, we would describe as, it's like a catchphrase, the problem of suffering and the problem of evil, where everybody's asking the question of why is it and why hasn't God stepped in and done something about it? So really early on, um, it's described by a philosopher called Epicurus as um, the inconsistent triad. So if you have this omnibelevenant God who's all good and all loving, and then he's also omnipotent and he's all powerful, then why on earth hasn't he solved the problem? Why hasn't he got rid of this thing called evil? And if he hasn't, then actually he's either then he's not good because any good God would have to get rid of it, or he's not all powerful because he can't get rid of it. Um, and that's sort of used to set up then a, a question that goes on for centuries and centuries that we call in the field theodicy, um, which is the problem of evil and the why does it exist? And also, why hasn't this God, whoever this God is, come in and done something about it? And I think we need to be, I always find that I need to be very, very careful around answering this kind of question and I have to say for anyone listening if they want a quick answer then I'm not going to be giving it because I think the minute we end up stepping into the territory of answering we're in danger of rationalizing it and I know that certainly the worst thing I can ever do as a priest if I'm going in to say uh, see um, a patient in a hospital who's nearing the end of their life, the last thing I'm going to do to comfort them is say, well, never mind, everything happens for a reason. Um, there is a reason for this, and I'll tell you what it is, and then you won't care about dying anymore. It doesn't, we all know it doesn't work like that, right? Um, there is no rational explanation that brings any kind of comfort in suffering. And I think really that has to be taken into account even though you could frame this as a completely philosophical question, ultimately it isn't purely a philosophical question because we're dealing with very human issues whenever we're talking about things like evil and suffering. Um, so I actually would go almost as far as to say we're, we're on the borders of it's not moral to answer it. 
in the sense of providing a quick and easy solution. Because I don't think once you get to the really what we might call horrendous evils that, that happen that we've known about through history and that we hear of people experiencing and, and may have experienced, that shouldn't be given a, a quick and easy response. And especially not by someone like me who hasn't experienced one of them. You know, um, I haven't been, for example, in a concentration camp. So for me to start explaining that away would um, seem... Ex- it, there's just something we need to be very, very careful about. So I think the problem of why isn't something... It, I don't think it's the job of theology to answer it. Lots of theologians would disagree with me, um, and lots wouldn't. It, it, that's very much a debated one. But I think the problem, um, the question, sorry, of what it is, for me, is a really, really fascinating one. There was something um, a while back, Gina, that you were talking about with Pope Paul yes. the Sixth. So, uh, so this is uh, there's a quotation from Pope Paul the Sixth from 1972, and I'm just I'm just reading a bit of it. But the bit of it um, that is really interesting um, and that pertains so well to the Exorcist uh, says, "Evil is not merely a lack of something." but an effective agent, a living spiritual being, perverted and perverting, a terrible reality. So we know that this dark and disturbing spirit really exists and still acts with treacherous cunning. The question of the devil and the influence he can exert on individual persons as well as communities is a very important chapter of Catholic doctrine, though it is given little attention today. See, I think this is really interesting. The fact that, and it's not just Pope Paul VI, our current Pope Francis is, you hear him saying similar kinds of things, um, where he'll he'll sort of say in the middle of a homily, there is a devil, the devil is real. Um, and it's been reported about so many times in news stories and, and the theologians in the world get really excited and start saying, what do you think he means? What does, what does it mean? There's a prayer book that um, our current Pope has written as well, where he says evil is a person. And what's really interesting here with the quote that you mentioned, and I think with Pope Francis, is pushing back at a conversation that happens in um, theology and philosophy around um, the nature in terms of the what is it. And there's, there's a long tradition Um, certainly in Christianity, about thinking of evil as the lack of something. And I think what gets often misunderstood is that the lack of something isn't therefore that bad. So that actually what's happening is that evil is being watered down. And, And I think that's often then what those who would be pushing back saying, no, no, the devil is real and this really exists, are trying to say, um, it's not just nothing, there's something and it's a devil and it's very, 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 very bad because I think there's this slight idea that something that is a lack isn't actually really that bad. And I'm not so sure, I'm not so sure I agree because when you start thinking about lack, um, so if I'm in a really, really cold place in the minus whatevers um, for the whole winter and I don't have a coat and I freeze to death, that's bad. It's not so much that evil there was because of a a thing. There was a lack and it was a coat. There's a theologian, who is a Catholic theologian actually, who talks about it as um, a hole in a sock. 
And he's not being flippant when he's talking about that. Um, but he's trying to say that you know that the hole in the sock is not a good thing and you know it's there, but you know it's there because of the sock. So in a sense, we know what evil is because we know what good is. And it's a little bit different. There's a bit in the novel where um, it's right at the end, actually, um, where um, I think it's uh, Father Dyer is asking Chris um, if she believes in the devil and if she believes in God. And, and she's sort of saying, well, I think there's probably a devil, but I'm not so sure about this God thing. And he says, but what about all the good in the world? And I, I think, in a sense, he needs to take it even one step further and say, how can you know there's a devil if you don't know good? Because how can you know the perversion of good if you don't know the good to begin with? And I think that's something, certainly all the way through, is everyone's very clear throughout this that what's happening to Reagan isn't good. Nobody ever, that we don't come across a character that thinks this is either acceptable or positive in any way, shape or form. Everybody knows it's bad. Um, but the reason they know it's bad is because that's not usually how young girls behave it's not usually a young girl's experience of her life um not you know not for the for the average young girl that's not what's going on and so I think there's a really interesting tension between the how we think about what it is and whether it's substantial and I think the fact that it's possibly insubstantial doesn't though negate the idea that you can still have a devil I don't think the one crosses out the other but I think often what happens, and especially what the Pope is pushing back against, is often what happens if you're saying it's a lack, then that means there's no devil. But I, I don't think that's necessarily that's necessarily what's going on. I really like the sock and the whole um, <laughs> analogy that really works. And in a way, it, it almost feels to me, as you were explaining it, as I continue to think about it, that the whole actually does become more than a lack the whole itself becomes a malevolent presence. Absolutely. Especially, if, especially yeah. if you've got an uncomfortable shoe on. Right. You'll really know that you've got a hole there. Right. It, like we, we, it is a hole, right? Yeah. Like we call it something. It has a name. Exactly. It's, it's not a lack. Yeah. And, you know, all of this reminds me that at least Blatty um, and perhaps also Friedkin, the director of the movie, um, but definitely Blatty, insisted, insisted that the movie was not... A horror movie would absolutely not approve of it being called a horror movie and saw it as a, a movie about faith and I feel like that connects up with that point uh, that you mentioned towards the end of the novel where um, the priest asks Chris well now do you believe in God right because I feel like yeah. in a lot of ways evil in this story in the form of the devil and in other forms it takes is used by Blatty as a litmus test for the existence of God. Yeah. Does that does that yeah. seem to, to ring true? And I mean, I feel like Karis yeah. is going through the same struggle. Yeah, I yeah. absolutely, I, I didn't know that. And that's absolutely fascinating. Um, I had no idea that he didn't call it a horror movie. That's, and I, I suspect it extends to the book. That's really, really interesting. Yeah. And makes sense, because actually, while reading the book, I didn't experience it as I thought I would because of all the hype that one, you know, when something's very, very famous like this is, I had a very specific idea of how I would feel. I expected to be sort of frightened all the time. I was 
revolted, I was appalled, I was disgusted, I was horrified, I felt very, very gloomy, but I wouldn't say I was terrified. A lot of the time I was simply reading along, desperate to find out what the end would be, but absolutely resonating with that um, experience that a lot of the characters were having around, well, this this, this can't possibly be real, can it? Um, this It couldn't possibly be this. And and it, it takes so long as well to build up to the point where even Dr. Klein, one of the psychiatrists, said, have you, have you ever heard of an exorcism? Do you know what that is? And, and just that, oh my goodness, I can't believe it's taken us this long to actually get to that sort of stage with it. But I think for all of them, whether they're people of sort of the church in terms of the priests who um, at least in some part we might expect to have some kind of faith in God, um, or whether it's um, the people in the movie world, and I love the juxtaposition of that, because certainly in in some ways it's sort of, where where would you not expect to find faith? Well, possibly Hollywood, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so it's this lovely juxtaposition of, well, this is where we expect to find it, this is where we don't, and yet it doesn't work, because actually it we all know, and this is what was so beautiful all the way through about the novel, is nothing's ever that simple and nothing's ever that straightforward. Um, but certainly, I, I got to the end and I asked myself, actually, how would I respond if I was Chris right now? And I think I'd definitely believe in a devil and I'd also be asking why God hadn't done something quicker. Yeah. Um, like where, where was the quick intervention with this and yeah. why did this take so long? And of course, it takes so long because people are slow, right? And we exist in a world where actually we're not robots and it's not a chessboard. You know, God isn't up there moving us as pieces around. Um, there's this thing called the will and they have choices and and that kind of thing. But um, nevertheless, I, I have to say I really empathised <laughs> as I got to the end of that. Well, and that brings up something uh, from a few minutes ago was interesting to me. Was it when you were talking about the problem of evil that you said this is not really for theologians to address? Yeah. yeah. So, what is it? Well, I mean, certainly since the 17th and 18th centuries, it's been the job of philosophers as they have taken it on. I mean, the sort of the earlier um, ideas around um, questions of evil and suffering tended to be related more to sin. Um, so certainly earlier theologians were asking and thinking about where sin comes from um, and that was very much their particular language. I'm not sure it's anyone's to find a solution. What I would love to see is more people finding responses to it. I mean that was going to be my answer is if you look at the world of this novel if you think about a practical approach to evil, we cannot leave it to the ivory towers. It is everybody's problem Absolutely. to figure out, right? And, and even if we can't figure out the why, we can certainly be figuring out, and this certainly is the job, both of you and every, every human being, is to figure out the, how do we respond yeah. to it. Well, and I feel like this whole novel is about people grappling with the problem of evil. And what's so interesting to me is that what when uh, when uh, the possessed girl's mom uh, Chris asks Father Karis for help? Um, he, you know his response is like, "Lady, we don't do that. We don't do exorcisms anymore. Like that that that's a thing of the past. Your your daughter is probably sick, right? Like he's the first one to have the background that might suggest he would have the right response to the problem of evil that she talks to, and he doesn't. Yeah." 
And yet what was so beautiful is eventually he sort of does, yeah. in that it just takes him a very long time to get, <laughs> to get there. Well, when he, and we'll get into this more in, in later episodes, but since, it's, since that hole in the sock is with me now, you know, because he's like, look, look, I'll go look at your daughter and I want to help you as much as I can, but, like, we're not going to be doing an exorcism, right? And he yeah. goes and looks at the daughter and it's almost like he gets a look at the hole in the sock. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. he is a he is yeah, a priest yeah. who is struggling with the sock, right? Like, yeah. he's struggling with having faith. And there's something about, to me, yeah. he definitely, he's a good guy. Um, and he has an opportunity to help, and he does. But I think he also sees there an opportunity to resolve a question for himself. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly... In the sense of, if again, even if he can't resolve the why is it in the world, or especially, and and this is something that we can get into, I think in a later episode. But why is it in Reagan? For goodness' sake, he knows that he's still got a responsibility to not run away from it, and and that bit, I, yeah, I I really <laughs> I really appreciate it. Well, he's the only one who doesn't, you know, other than the family. You know, like yeah. everybody else is like, all right, well, I have somewhere I have to be. So <laughs> good I've, luck with this. I've done all I can now. Yeah. Here, go and find a Catholic priest. Yes. And, uh, you know, and it's sort of an alarming turn of events. I also, um, I have a couple sort of wrap up questions for you. But before I do, I wonder if we could like this, this quotation that I read from uh, Paul VI is from 1972. The movie was 1973. I think the book was... 71. Um, so, like, the book and this quotation are, like, really uh, contemporary in, to each other. Um, and I wonder if, theologically, is there something going on at this moment that sort of makes evil a particularly special problem? Or is this just every time? Like, and this is the expression that evil sort of finds in, in this time period. I wonder if... And, I mean, again, this is just completely off the top of my head, but I wonder if after, I mean, obviously Europe, after world wars, after um, just sort of living on the back of all of that, um, those of us who were around in the 70s weren't around in the 40s in the same way, experiencing the things that um, many would have been experiencing and I think, certainly in Great Britain, anyway, if once you look back there, um, there's so much optimism <laughs> that it's almost unhelpful in that, that I think people are very, very optimistic. You know, the 60s has been through... Um, it, there's a lot that's good for folks um, during that particular period. And I think for anyone in the church, especially, the idea that that's going to disappear completely, any idea of, of actual evil, would be troubling because when it's related to sin, etc., it's never really gone away as far as the church would be concerned. Um, but, I mean, whilst I couldn't identify necessarily the 70s specifically, um, certainly what we've seen through the Enlightenment and then going through modernity is this massive shift away, and especially away in the church, um, from the idea of any actual supernatural evil, for want of a better word. And there's a really big push that, 
really big pushback that um, it's um, all of the biblical studies work that's being done is saying, oh, we didn't, you know, this wasn't really about demons. It was about um, political powers. And there's a lot of what we call demythologization going on during that period and, and before it. Um, and I think you have a few religious figures who are sort of standing up and saying, well, hang on just a minute. I, I don't I don't buy it. Um, but, but there was a huge move back all through the 18th and 19th centuries. They're working really hard to basically, I guess, you know, make Christianity slightly less irrelevant and, and slightly more palatable. And they abstract everything so far back that you then end up with this, it's a very, very different kind of Christianity than, than the sort of thing we, we see and hear about earlier on. Um, and particularly, I find it fascinating. There's a, I mean, he writes beautifully, and and a lot of his theology is in, incredible. And but there's a theologian called Schleiermacher, and he does a really interesting thing where he actually puts the devil in. He writes a very very long book, hundreds and hundreds of pages on the is called the Christian faith, um, and then he puts the devil in as an appendix. And um, in the appendix, he basically argues that we don't really need the devil. Um, because the church has never made any use of it, as he describes, doctrinally. And so what he means is that it's absolutely fine to have the devil in hymns and songs and poetry, and it's not a bad idea because it gives us an image of something, and, and that's very helpful. Yeah. So we don't, you know, we don't need to get rid of him completely. We can keep him in the songs, but we don't need him when we're thinking about um, what does theology have to say about creation, uh, we can do creation without any sense of um, a devil. We can do why Jesus came without any sense of a devil. We can do um, what Jesus was doing on the cross, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection. Um, the devil wasn't involved in any of that. We don't need it. We can find a good doctrinal answer for why all these things were necessary and the devil isn't there. And then another sort of piece I guess of evidence you could use for that is the creed that we say in church every Sunday and we're still saying the same creed now that we were saying in sort of like the fourth and fifth centuries and there's no mention of the devil in there um, and so it's a sense certainly for Christian theologians of well is it necessary or isn't it and I think for people like Pope John sorry Pope Paul the sixth and Pope Francis now and, and many 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 others they would want to push back and say, no, actually, it is a, a pretty central part of, of salvation history, for sure. What you just said dovetails with a lot of my own thinking about this. Um, and I really like what you had to say about um, the wars, you know, because they did pile up there for a while. Um, yeah, you know, absolutely. And, and there was there yeah. was real, you know, like there was there was no abstract evil. You know, that was a time, yeah. um, especially in Europe, where, like, you felt like the cold boot of evil explicitly. It was not an abstract thing. It, it would be interesting to think about why this abstractification happened theologically at the, at the same time that we were pro you know, possibly getting away you know, from feeling that cold boot of evil on, on us, right? And I often think about, so the thing that I think about in the late 60s, early 70s, is the pretty much giant explosion of serial killers, right? Uh, lots and lots yeah. and lots of serial killers in America. I grew up in a town that had a federal penitentiary in it, so I, I learned a lot about serial killers. We had a serial killer of our own where I grew up um, when I was growing up. And so 
like I, I have this sort of like this time, the, the time of this book and the time of this quotation from uh, Paul VI feels to me like a time when we have a lot of plain old banal human evil. Yeah. That it would be very yep. easy to chalk up to yep. plain old banal human evil. Yep. And it's like this book with its yeah. opening lines, uh, you know, the, the quotes that we talked about um, at the beginning, yeah. and then also the Pope are saying to us, be careful how far you abstract this, because yeah. you are losing the opportunity to see the problem for what it is. Yeah, I agree. And address the problem of evil. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, I completely agree. So if we keep thinking about evil both in terms of the book and in terms of, of theology, what is, what is the real danger of evil? I think it's that we can't predict it. And certainly in terms of the, the book, I had no idea, and it's why I kept reading the whole way through, until I'd finished. I mean, I'd finished this in a matter of days. I just couldn't leave it alone. Because you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know where it will end. You don't know where the limits are. Will she die? Won't she die? Suddenly, anything is possible. And that's, that seems to be then, you know, what's, what's so evil about it is the fact that you just can't see any limits on it. So it's not like it can go to a certain stage, but we're all okay because we know, oh, well, he can't kill her, so that's fine then. It, there's, there's literally no cutoff to how far this can go. And, and that, I, I think it was actually a very good way of describing, therefore, that, that sort of almost what makes evil evil is, is because, you know, that hole can just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, right, until there's no stop left. Well, and it's interesting when uh, Father Marin shows up at the very end of this book, the, the first thing that he says to Karis when he's giving him advice is just don't listen. Don't listen when the devil talks. Do not listen. Yeah. Close your ears to it because... He will do anything and say anything to to corrupt you, and and that is dangerous. And I, I feel like when he says that, it, like, you know, it's just it's just you know, it's the devil talking through the mouth of a little girl in a bed. But all of a sudden, it felt like the most dangerous place in the world. Absolutely, and because he lies, mm-hmm. and so well that mm-hmm. there's just no way of determining truth easily that's that's pretty darn scary well there's that moment when Karis throws tap water on Reagan's body and the devil acts like it burns and Karis doesn't believe that Reagan is possessed based on that and I've always been that also happens in the movie and for years I've been completely confused about that until I thought about Marin's words more carefully and that is a really devious trick on the devil's part right to yeah. make Karis think that Reagan is faking Absolutely. he he fakes burns uh from the tap water so I mean that's yeah. just one like it's the most it's the tiniest example but it shows the the extent to which you can he can make Karis doubt himself absolutely yeah, yeah. which sort of goes back again to all of I mean I find it fascinating, and again, we can talk about this on a later episode, but um, when, when we're talking about the actual exorcism scene, there's lots and lots of names. 
and one of them is the ancient serpent. And that goes back to the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and of course they're deceived by a snake. It's this idea all throughout, I think, up until the 1970s, from whenever that particular sort of uh, interpretation of Genesis was uh, first coming about, which I think was probably sort of second century. But um, it's this idea that it deceives. So how does this story help us think about evil in the world? First of all, it's playing on someone who's really vulnerable. Um, and it's, it's not just. So we have this idea, I think, we're, we're just sort of wired to think that good people should be rewarded for good things they do. And um, there are people who are bad and they should be punished. Um, and it, it throws out any sense of who's good and bad, because actually it's a really it, that is very difficult to discern but also it's never evident really why and so it it's that it's the way that um it sort of perverts what's good i.e a little girl who isn't really doing any harm as far as she's aware playing with a ouija board and then it spreads um and you can sort of see that in our societies right when you see the sort of the way that it's contagious. So it's almost like a virus in a sense, <laughs> in, the, in the way that it doesn't just affect Reagan, it affects the people who are living with her, it affects her mother, it affects these priests, it affects the local policeman, and it affects, to the extent that they can't solve her problems, the psychiatrists. And so it goes way, way beyond the experience of one person. Um, and I, I think that's a helpful way of thinking about where we see things happening to people far removed from any sense of the original cause, um, the way it ripples out. But also, um, mostly for me, it didn't play fair. There's, there's just no sense in this that it's something you can play with and be on any... There are no rules to this game. Well, and it's that that's an interesting task this novel sets for itself because it takes the problem of evil and suggests in a million different ways that it is everybody's problem, not just the problem of theologians, yeah. um, but also that it is a problem that works itself out among people. And yeah. that, that sets us up um, to talk about Reagan's descent into possession and the characters that are involved in that in the next episode. Looking forward to it. Thanks to Pam Lack and Patrick Flanagan of the Digital Humanities Center at San Diego State University for technical help. And Phil Cameron of the Language Resource Center at the University of Michigan for arranging studio time. Thanks to Darren Curtis Music for It's in the Fog, the copyright-free music used in this episode. <laughs>